Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. This week I spoke with Isaira. Isaira is a spiritual leader born and raised on the Aboriginal land of Kaurna. Did I say that right? In Southern Australia. Ghana. She works with indigenous communities, public forums, and continues to bridge understanding between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. She's a highly respected spiritual teacher and was brought to the Himalayas and ordained by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. I've just had the conversation with her. She's wandering out there. She's a sprightly and magical being, conveying limitless warmth, kindness, and love in a very, I would say, accessible manner that feels very real to me. Uh, I'm on I'm on tour in Australia and in New Zealand and Canada in America with my new show Recovery Live. It's going really, really, really well. I've added second shows in Auckland and Victoria, Canada. You might be able to pick up tickets there and sometimes new ones get released. Go to russellbrand.com if you want and get them there. Also, look at my YouTube channel. We're making some lovely little videos, aren't we, Jen? Spiritual videos, videos of behind-the-scenes activity on this tour. Have a look at some of that stuff. You'll like it. And also, go on the mailing list, russellbrand.com, to get like like secret, sneaky bits of info about me and my antics. Uh, and subscribe to that YouTube channel. If you want to follow me, do, at Rusty Rockets on Twitter, hashtag under the skin. If you've got some inquiries about this stuff that we've been doing, on Instagram, at Russell Brand, TikTok, at Russell Brand, and uh, LinkedIn, it's Russell Brand. I am Russell Brand. That's who I am. Remember, Luminary is now available in New Zealand, South Africa, Ireland, Canada, Australia, everywhere where people primarily speak the English language due to, well, you know, colonisation. Make no bones about it. Hey, did you listen to the Michael Singer podcast? He's amazing, isn't he? The untethered soul author. Renee Norton goes, this is a great perspective. That voice is something I've struggled with. She means the voice in the mind. It's like my mind is in a wrestling match between the conscious and subconscious. It is like that. Shane Forsyth, I was going to write something from my inner voice that was interesting and profound, but then my outer voice made me type, Wayne's world, it's party times. Excellent. Oh, outer voice, you've done it again. Liam Free, does anyone else have random conversation going on in their head nothing good bad or good just like random dialogue yeah all of us that's what we're talking about baby Jan Sladeko it's amazing how he was able to detach from his ego it's a confusing and powerful journey well if you like that you're going to love this talk with Isaira because we're talking about the self same thing from another perspective from a woman who's undergone great suffering and on the other side of it experienced a powerful enlightening although, uh, although um, she was clearly dabbling in the ethereal planes long before that. So let's have that conversation right now. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Isara, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. I've not done a podcast in Australia before. Well, that's exciting. Would you mind telling our listeners uh, uh, what you just told me about uh, meeting me in the ethereal plains earlier in the week? Sure. Well, I'm not sure that everyone quite gets this, but, you know, we're so much more than what we can really physically see right and you have experiences like that you already started telling me how when you breathe a certain way you experience this continuum of consciousness and so when we sleep we we tend to expand into those other realms so what happened was you know I I get busy on these other levels and how do you get there (laughs) well that's an interesting one to answer because I already 
am there in a sense. So I, I kind of am that and I can be very focused and present with the more physical realm and I'm simultaneously aware of these more expansive states. So when I go to sleep, I consciously move or be on those other levels. And well, guess who I met? Go on. Little old you, didn't I? <laughs> you met little old Russ in the ethereal realm. Little old Russ, rustling around. These planes of being, are they scripturally recorded in a kind of conventional theological way, like like bardos or interdimensional spaces? Are they named like, oh, you were in this dimension or that dimension? Have they got like actual almost psychogeographic or metaphysical names? Most definitely. And it depends on, you know, which school of thought you look into. But, um, you know, like the uh, Sanskrit records refer to the lokas and that these lokas are different levels and dimensions of consciousness. So there we were in this loka, just having a little meet-up, and um, you're like, oh, great, because I said, you know, my, my rep had called your agent, and you were quite excited about that. You said, yeah, we've got to meet up. So I put it in my diary the next day, for this day. And even though at that time, nothing of the sort had been confirmed. In the thing I think when we're dealing with metaphysics and we're dealing with uh, conscious realms beyond the sensory norms is it becomes tricky to apply our understanding and the limitations we bring to that understanding in, in an abstract space. A simple example would be like, how do you see another person? Does that person have a physical form? How do you see me in an inferior place? Do I have a face and hair and am I wearing clothes? You know, what? how do you put that into the sort of sensory, the kind of sensory description that, like, that most of us are used to? Well, the thing is, because we're primarily occupying this, you know, this physical experience anyway and these features, on those other lem- levels we tend to identify or relate through that still anyway. So, you know, even even if people are able to see, for example, their loved ones that have passed over, they still tend to see some of the features that were characteristic to them being alive in the body. Um, however... Having said that, I, I do also experience occasions where it's just pure light forms, pure fields of energy. And, you know, there were many a moments like that as a child. I was experiencing beings visiting me and, uh, you know, I would go into these other realms with light beings. Of course, everyone thought I was nuts because they couldn't comprehend what I was describing or saying. What are your earliest memories of uh, these kind of experiences and reporting them to other people? Well, I have a vivid memory of actually being a baby, lying on my back, and I was dressed up in this little pink bonnet, and there was a spade next to me, I'm on a little blanket, and I'm lying on my back staring up through what was the apple tree, And I was just completely aware of the whole life field of everything. The apple tree and the insects and the the smell and the blades of grass. So it was like I was experiencing the physical and beyond all at the same time. That everything is actually emerging from the formless, from the light field. It's all light. And I was surrounded by 
light beings. And what happens, uh, right, you remember that even pre-linguistic, pre-lingual experiences of the super... Oh, pre-lingual experiences, me that's forgotten, look, <laughs> uh, of, of um, what would be regarded as supernatural, or at least metaphysical experiences beyond, mm. like, mm. ordinary realms. Mm. One question that occurs to me, and it's quite a big one to wade straight into, if we do have access to these planes of consciousness which are somehow either ulterior or beyond the conventional and agreed upon material inverted commas objective reality then why does it matter if the planet gets destroyed for example because it's even from a physical perspective the earth's a you know a, a little tiny dot so if there's a sort of interdimensional correlatives to consider also then why is it important that we, for example, express love, create communities, respect the planet, many of the traditions and ideals that recur for humanity? How do you underwrite them if you have sort of limitless access to all mm. of these dimensions? I find that so fascinating. You know, that, that, that question comes up a lot when people say, well, okay, if everything is and it all just is, then why do we bother? Why are we moved? in the way we are, like, you know, fundamentally, that's the question you're asking. My experience of that is that because it's actually the fundamental nature of creation itself, of the underlying consciousness, the underlying intelligence, it is love. It is unified and unifying. It is expressing itself as an interdynamic relationship and so everything that is interconnected and interrelating you know it's this exchange of information and exchange of energies and well we are here we are being this so even though we can consider you know from the cosmic perspective we're not even a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck of dust are we yet here we are actually experiencing an entire world as a microcosm, we are experiencing the macrocosm. And so it matters from that dimension of experience. Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So how did you tell me, could you tell me about your upbringing and education in spiritual matters, where it came from, please? Well, it just arose from within me. And I, you know, I, I can recall so many moments that I was directly experiencing these states of awareness or consciousness that gradually I started to realize were not the common experience around me because people were reacting to it and, you know, I was being told to be quiet or that it was nonsense or fantasy and imagination and gradually as if, you know, I was somewhat crazy. So I was considered not quite right even at a certain point. So gradually I started to learn to stay quiet, but I was just constantly experiencing these levels of awareness of interconnection and experimenting with that. And this incredible juxtaposition between having that direct experience of connectedness and oneness of everything, really directly seeing and sensing and feeling that, so not conceptually, but as a, a whole lived state and yet having around me 
reflected the opposite of incredible suffering and conflict and shutdown and disconnection. And so that fascinated me from a very young age. And I wanted to get to the bottom of that. I wanted to understand how was it that I was experiencing such immense love and immense connectedness, yet I'd come into a world where that was so fractured. I actually started to think I must have taken a wrong turn somewhere, come in at the wrong time, the wrong place. Hang on, which highway did I take to get back in here? So I was always remembering like past life experiences. I was traveling meditatively and, you know, in the sleep state. And I was actually meeting lamas and yogis when I was sleeping. So that was really the foundation of my own spiritual journey, that it was, it was just there already emerging within me. Someone told me the other day that when Prabhupada, uh, no, um, Yogananda was in um, America setting up his deal, like in the 30s or the 50s or whatever, he had some event that was kind of pizzazzy and that. And someone went, oh, you must be pleased. It was like a book launch or some documentary film about him or, or something or another. He goes, how did you find it? And he goes, oh, do you want the honest answer? And they went, yeah, yeah. And he went, while this is happening, I'm in communion with my teacher in the ethereal planes and all of his teachers and the limitless light source so you know it's a very pleasant evening but i'm not that bothered you know like sort of of living up there i feel like um i would like to ask you uh i saw that what about the connection between spiritual awakening how do we spiritually awaken in a context that regards um non-compliance as a sort of mental illness how do we uh, tackle sort of addiction and 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 the co- common mental fractures that people experience being denied access to the sacred which is sort of most people's experience of the world now i would contest mm, absolutely my observation is the reason we have so much uh you know mental health issues and fracturing and conflict in the world it is because we're so disconnected from our fundamental essence and you know if we strip back all all the lingo the language and all the ideologies and we we get right down to it that's what it's about what is what is our true essence and if we're not connected to that and if we're not really experiencing our true nature which is all interconnected and is so much more than just this physical form and the construct we make in our mind if we're not in touch with that then we get trapped in that construct we get caught up in the polarized mindset and the more we get caught up in that the more conflicting it becomes and the more suffering it produces to the point that we lose that framework of integration and so if we don't have that integration The irony is that we actually can't continue to suppress that anyway because it is our nature. So so it's like you you continue trying to avoid or ignoring the true nature of everything and it doesn't take long before it smacks you in the face to wake you up and, and it says, hey, that's not actually how it is. Would you say then it's more our over social structures and the way that we organize systems that prevent more people having a spiritual experience rather than a kind of inherent inability for human beings to live 
serenely or interconnectedly? Definitely. I, I would agree with that 100%. You know, our, our society, um, social norms, our systems, all the, the beliefs that we've based our current social construct on are so restricted and confined and controlled and controlling. And in some ways they're designed to prevent people from really being truly connected and truly authentic and empowered and, you know, inspired and imaginary. How do you mean designed to prevent people awakening? Well, if we look at, for example, social media platforms, we see that, and and I don't know if you've seen the reports around this, but it is a fact that they employed psychologists who understand the human nature and its behavioural patterns and how to actually control those behavioural patterns. So it's an addictive platform and it is designed to be polarising. And the reason it's designed to be polarising is that it keeps people split and addicted, which means that the human psyche can be controlled to keep consuming, to serve that turbine of the consumer cycle and to prevent unity. Because if if we actually do recognise the greater power of our unity and we really step back into that and we really come together, we are actually going to overturn these systems. Do you experience much fear, anxiety or doubt? I'll just have a little moment. <laughs> got, got to just for those of you that are listening to this exclusively through uh, Luminary, at this moment, Isara is just drinking some tequila. Mighty great glugs <laughs> of the stuff. She, she calls it a naughty water, her magic medicine. <laughs> natural highs here, Russell, natural highs. I've been getting them. I've been meet, going up on them ethereal planes, meeting you. Yeah. On sheer breath alone. <laughs> Breathing myself out of me nut. (laughs) I have to say, before I answer that question, it's just so like meeting an old friend. Don't you think? Yeah, I recognise your face somehow. I recognise your being. All right, I recognise your essence. (laughs) (laughs) It's a poker game of who can recognise the most spiritual thing. Oh, you're adorable. You know, one of the things I I love about you, I've always loved about you, is you're just, you're full spectrum. You're so real. You're, you're like, you're so, you're so deep and intelligent and, and reflective and sensitive. And you're a complete rascal. You're so naughty and silly and <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I love that. That's a really good compliment. Made my, made my tummy turn over. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank you for saying that to me. And to me, that reflects authenticity and a really deep level of connection with yourself. Why do I experience a lot more pain and anxiety and fear then? Because remember, I just asked you about that and you chose instead <laughs> to swill down a great load of gin. Um, like... How come? Hang I, on, it's tequila. Oh yes, yes. Be consistent with the lie. Um, so, like, how come? Um, how come? Why do I experience so much anxiety, uh, fear, doubt, uh, lust, etc.? 
Well, first of all, you know, human nature, yin-yang, light-dark. We are here to really experience and live the full spectrum. And because we've been inculcated, you know, we've been so deeply conditioned for millennia to be disconnected from our true nature, it's very, very difficult to integrate that. It doesn't just happen overnight. And so this journey to, and you know all about this, my gosh, you've, you've had a very colourful past, haven't you? And you must have had such an amazing journey of really discovering yourself through so many different experiences. So you know firsthand that the nature of the shadow in the human experience is quite a phenomenon. And until we can meet that consciously, we are overtaken by fear, by uncertainty. We, we lack that, that full connectivity of all the parts of ourself. Thanks to this lovely lady called Megan, I went into a flotation tank today. Now, to, to your point about um, meeting that shadow head on, whilst I was in that flotation tank, there was a, quite early on when I lay there, I felt fear. I felt like, I don't like being in this thing. The air's not thick enough. The air's not got enough nutrients in it. I'm going to suffocate in it. Even though like part of my rational mind knew, you're just in a room. You can open this thing whenever you want and get out. And it, I noticed that it initiated a, a series of primal responses and programs. Now, when you say something like confront the fear or confront the shadow, do you mean by that what I did, which was sort of I watched those feelings come up like, oh, I'm frightened now. And I recognized that it was an opportunity for me to kind of parent myself. Now, admittedly, this was a, in a sense a sort of a quite a safe way of encountering that. You know, it's different if I'm um, ignited or c confronted by another human being, say, that makes me feel insecure and inadequate. It, it will be harder for me to have that kind of perspective then. I really feel the primal surges quite strongly in those situations. But in this one, I was able to sort of stay in the awareness and those feelings dissipated so is that an example of uh confronting the shadow sure and i guess probably it's about leaning into it you know staying present just allowing oneself to be fully in the moment with whatever feelings are arising or whatever thoughts float through the mind <laughs> float in a flotation tank <laughs> you're so cheeky and adorable <laughs> Speak for yourself. Because like uh, like I like you, you're like a mischievous spiritual person. Is that what it is? You met that Dalai Lama, did you? And yeah, he I ordained did. you. What does that mean, he ordained you? Um, so I underwent a series of initiations. Um, and that was a process, I guess, for me of reintegration. So I, I'd already been meeting with the Lamas as a child. Up in the old... Travelling around. Planes. Yeah, right. And no joke, they actually planned to come to meet me, to pick me up, to take me back there. And when they turned up, I just laughed and cried. And we laughed and cried and hugged each other because it was like, oh, hello. Now we're seeing each other in the physical. We're back together. So, yeah, anyway, I went through... Do you mean to say, like, when you physically met these people, it felt like a very familiar, like, oh, it, right, there they oh, are. Oh, it wasn't just familiar. It was complete recognition. Yeah, like there's a second reality as real as this one or another reality as real absolutely, as this one. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah, I, I spent time um, going through a process of kind of like preparing and reintegrating um, 
because up until then I had felt so alienated and so alone without the people who really were experiencing the same levels of awareness and understanding you know I I had been bullied I had been abused really terribly abused through my childhood how come why where what's going on first of all I was considered very strange second of all I came into a family that you know like most of us we have families that have some challenges and and so our family had some big challenges and um consequently I experienced a lot of abuse and like I say that was an incredible juxtaposition this is when you were little yeah as a as a small child and and all the way through my childhood and into my teen years to the point that I actually became really a bit of a rebel um I I just decided one moment that's it I can't take it anymore and I left home I, I wasn't even 16. Where were you growing up? South Australia yeah which was you know incredible country that was my savings grace you know I I probably could have gone slightly mad because think about it I was the only one experiencing those levels of awareness and being told I'm crazy and it's all you know weird and it's not even real Everyone else around me is experiencing reality in a totally different way. It got to a point where I did start to question my sanity. And my savings grace was the fact that I was so close to country, to nature. I was in communion with it all the time. And, um, yeah, that provided me such deep nurturing and sustenance and, uh, you know, allowed me to to have the love and the communion that was so lacking from my family. So you had like a normal but somewhat abusive childhood mm. and then ran away really? Yeah, I ran away. Where'd you go? What happened? Well, I remember really clearly a particular morning where I just I couldn't take it anymore because I received a massive slap over my face and I started planning to leave. And um, I, I just started sleeping on friends' couches or on the floor or whatever. Now, I don't know if you... Well, have you been to Australia before? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if you've been to South Australia, but in winter, like the weather there can be incredibly harsh. It was in the middle of winter, and so there's this slicing wind that comes through. And it got to a point where I didn't, uh, I didn't have anywhere to stay... And so I'd sit up in these late night cafes, sipping on a cup of chamomile tea, right? I'm sitting, just drinking chamomile tea to stay warm. And um, meanwhile, I'd been having these dreams that I was being chased and violently beaten, like almost murdered. So I was trying to stay safe. And uh, this couple saw me I think they must have been in there a few times they saw me and decided you know what's this young girl doing here they invited me back to their place to stay on their lounge room uh, couch I thought oh I'm safe got up in the morning discovered I was in the middle of a drug ring oh no yeah and there's all these people coming and going with drugs but the amazing thing was Russell these people were so 
just being themselves in their experience. And I could see they, they were wounded souls, but they were so authentic. And they just loved me. So they didn't take you for nefarious purposes. They were just helping and they happened to be also a little bit of a drug ring. Yeah, right. However, it didn't just stop there because then one of the men did take a fancy to me and started pursuing me. You was too young for that kind of thing, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, and I'd, I just tried to, you know, push him away. And the more I tried to push him away, the more he chased me until the point that he snapped and that was the night that I had one of the most extraordinary mm, fulcrum moments of consciousness and the point of being in this this form this incarnation and so he snapped started absolutely beating me raping me literally trying to kill me And at a certain point, I realized that if I did not draw on every power of my consciousness, which I had already been exercising as a child deliberately, if I didn't draw on that, I was going to die. And in that moment, Russell, I kid you not, I was everything because I was so one-pointed in consciousness, I became everything. I was him beating this body. I was the floor, I was the room, I was the blood splattered everywhere. And I saw and realised his soul and his wound. I realised he was violating me because he was so broken, so disconnected from love. And when I realised that, I prayed like this love was an endless ocean and all I could think was may you know love may you feel love may you realize you are lovable and i kid you not the room lit up completely with a thousand angels and that man the murderer he dropped to his knees and he he just pleaded and prayed and implored to whatever God, God, help me. I've nearly killed this angel. Help. You have to save her. He became the saviour. He had an awakening. Now, look, we hear about the power of love, okay? But somehow we still keep it out there as an abstract concept. But it is a vibration. What happened then was an energy and a vibration of complete unity. And that dropped him back into a state of absolute awareness now when he realized what he'd done though like he called for emergency you know to get me an ambulance etc but when he realized what he'd done he snapped again and he smashed my head into the wall again and then he ran away I slipped into a coma however I was awake I was complete consciousness and it was like everything timeless everything was together all lifetimes all all experiences and my family's there my father was absolutely beside himself thinking oh my god I've never told my daughter I love her what if she dies what am I going to do and it was in that instant everything came together and I realized oh that's right I saw what I'd come for and I hadn't finished, so I went, oh, 
I better come back into my body, slip back into my body, twitch my little eyes open through a very broken face and my father saw I'd, I was back and he burst into tears and just cried and cried and for the first time in his life he told me he loved me. That is the power of love and as I lay there I knew unquestionably I am consciousness. I am unbreakable. I am that. Always have been, always am, always will be. And when we make contact with that, everything makes sense. Everything falls into place. And so, you know, when you talk about the fear, how do you, how do you meet that? How do you overcome that? How we overcome that is by being absolutely present. Be completely aware and awake to what is happening. Don't run from it. Don't pull back from it. Be with it. And that brings us into our infinite self, that limitless power and awareness. And everything comes into a totally different alignment. That makes sense. Why do you think people are cynical and sceptical? Why are, why are people sceptical about... Um, but I suppose mysticism and um, and sort of the poetics of love. Do you think it's to do with people feeling too hurt to take stuff on board, or do you think it's because we live in a sort of a rationalist, materialist culture that's sort of so empirically driven that if you can't provide clear data that people are like no i'm not having it it's not it's not real like we've been told or we've accepted a particular version of reality sure you think it's that yeah i I actually feel it's both Mm. and i think we've got you know newton to thank for some of that that and philosophy taking the stance of um you know, a, a separate perspective, non-subjective, etc., um, and that we've we've just become so disconnected and dispossessed from our true state and true relationship with life, with creation, that we do live in fear. We are wounded. I think a lot of the wounding and fear of love is because we're not living in accord with nature, and. The, the flip side to this is that we're constantly trying to make everything safe and secure and fixed and permanent and known. And it's like, um, crap, the world is not safe. Nothing is safe. You know, right now, your mind is in danger of being swallowed back up in consciousness. The clouds are in danger of dying into the oceans. Every blade of grass is in danger of being consumed, you know. Life is not safe, but because we're divorced from that truth, we're living this illusion. And so we're constantly in fear. And the more we're in fear, the more we try and cling to some kind of known construct. Hence your point, you know, is it just that we're so steeped in this materialistic view that we try to measure everything according to data and the way we think we can measure what is real compared to what is not real so that's a big part of it 
Newton was just trying his best. He loved God. Yeah, absolutely. I think he'd done some bloody good work. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers to that. Good on <laughs> Newton. For where would we be without gravity? Mm. It would floating around. Well, you are anyway, ignoring <laughs> gravity, shooting off into the cosmos at will. <laughs> so after these terrible, uh, violent episodes that you've articulately described for us, thank you, um, what happened now? When do you start to become initiated and connected to non-materialistic and ideologically led spiritual groups and teachers? Mm. So within that particular event was the recognition that the entire human experience is about love. It's a quest to know and remember love and to express that love, to live it, to be it. And so as I knew this, of course, I, I realised or recognised that that's the supreme task or quest that we're all on and that's what I am here for. And I wasn't interested then in a conventional life. I wasn't interested in being put into, you know, typical boxes. And when the encounter occurred, you know, that the lamas came and met me and took me back. Even there, while I was undergoing this kind of like a preparation or reintegration with the Tibetan fraternity and family, I was just present observing this, even within that, the hierarchy and the construct and and how it's also taken on this structure and that it's Whilst there's so, so much that, of course, is pointing to the underlying essence and timelessness and truths, etc., it, it's wrapped up in this whole construct. And so I'm, I'm just sitting there observing this going, okay, well, I can see this and I recognise this. And I, I had a particular experience recalling a previous incarnation as a yogi tibetan master i'd already been serving as a teacher so i'd recalled all these states and practices and teachings etc and that i made a vow that i was not going to adhere to any specific lineage of or religion and so that was quite ironic because there i was within the buddhist fraternity recalling this undergoing initiation having been ordained and realizing Hmm, my journey's actually beyond this. So how did that happen? Because I think a lot of people are fascinated by the infrastructure around uh, this—you know—the seemingly magical. Um, what do I want to say? Sort of like, um, kind of apparatus around reincarnation. Like, what happens? Does some monks turn up? Where? What? You know? What do you? How does this all take place? I've read a little bit about how they appoint a Dalai Lama, smoke blowing around, lamas looking for two-year-olds, showing them artifacts, seeing if they recognise them and stuff like that. How did it take place in? In like, I recognise that the sort of su- the supernatural or you know sort of higher consciousness aspect of it took place in a way that you've explained to me. But what about the bit, the practical side of like how they know where in southern Australia to go and what went down? Mm. what went down on a practical level because it's interesting for me to sort of think that this is taking place here here in ordinary reality 
Yeah, yeah. And that is fascinating. How How is that kind of merging and meeting the, you know, like you say, the mystical or that unseen dimension of knowing or experience manifesting at the ground level? So I don't know all the immediate details in relation to them measuring coming to me it was relayed to me through one of the women who'd who'd been within that particular um, Buddhist center for many many years that they had identified the incarnation that I was and where I would be born and when it would be the time to come and get me now in my own direct experience in the time I was there I saw that the way they um, determine this is through what's called scrying and so they knew and recognized I have that capacity or power which is a psychic ability to read signs and they have all these bodies of text so they do um, a whole lot of divination as well with all of these texts and so they get a series of answers through divination and through psychic vision that match up and repeat themselves and it points to certain answers and so they can measure things based on these divinations and questions and answers did you read some signs and stuff did i in that in that instance yeah Mm -hmm. they show you stuff and you go oh this is this Uh uh-huh yeah yeah so there were certain things that i recognized and they they also looked at my palms and identified you know, very distinct markings on my palms. And and I saw this also um, that was accounted around one of the more famous reincarnations, Lama Osel, um, and how he literally recognised his Jeep from his past life. And he used to do the funniest things, like he would steal my sunglasses and my hats and in his past life as Lama Yeshi, he was renowned for loving hats and sunglasses. And so there's like these characteristic traits that keep playing out as well. Yeah, like it's sort of a game. I um, sometimes have felt the uh, the sort of potent, playful beauty of God in nature when in particular i remember one morning in los angeles in the sea up early and awake or the ocean it would be and feeling like i noticed some kids were down the beach a little bit and i thought oh there's them kids you know sort of was aware of them and then like the sort of sea knocked me over and i felt that i really felt like i was being knocked over by a big daft powerful playful dog i really felt like it was being demonstrated to me that i float around a top of great great power uh, another time uh, a homeless shelter for you know families like i when playing with this little group this group of kids about four or five as they all sort of folded in on me and all my whole field of vision was filled with children's faces homeless children actually but the joy the joy and light in their eyes i felt like oh this is god this is god i feel t- i feel it like sometimes it breaches even if you are living a s- quite sensually led materialist life this ulterior reality breaches and becomes preeminent and uh exp- empirical experienceable mm, absolutely 
Hmm. I wonder if it's possible. Do you think more people need to have that experience, these kind of experiences? Are, we, are you sort of... Uh, I get the idea that you're... You don't seem evangelical in a mad way, but I mean to say I feel like you've got some sort of mission idea. Well, I certainly recognise the purpose of being and, um, you know, that that's what I live for. I, I, I feel the purpose of being fully here as love and it's it's kind of like there's this fountain okay it, it's a fountain of infinite love and joy and awareness and I'm so full and overflowing that there's no option but to give that to share that I I I am fulfilled in love and joy and peace whilst many, many people around me are not. They've lost the connection with that. And so what more is there for me to do than to, to share the possibility that that exists in them too? Yeah. Do you meditate in a conventional way or do you, do you say that you're sort of meditating all the time? You, you kind of answered it, you know. It's, yeah, I, I am that. And... One of the things I've said to some of the, you know, students or people that have attended programs I've delivered is, you know, that the practice we call meditation in a lot of ways is really just like a key that you unlock the door and you're able to enter the space. And once you're in the space, that's it. You're that. You know, you don't have to keep grabbing hold of the key and shoving it back in the lock. You know, otherwise it becomes rote. It becomes something mechanical and you lose the authenticity of actually just being, beingness itself. Yeah, a lot of people have said that to me now, like Eckhart Tolle and Michael Singer and people that, you know, seem to me like they live there in that awakened mm -hmm. state. But I need to keep doing it because uh, otherwise I drift back into very voluptuous sense-based experience i like the way you said it's voluptuous <laughs> <laughs> don't you get none of that don't look, you sometimes want to just gorge yourself on chocolate or go a bit sex mad look to me consciousness is the entire play i don't see a division in terms of what is or isn't or what is okay or is not okay you know consciousness is the whole play and there is a wonder and a beauty and a magic in manifesting as this human experience and, and sex and sensuality is beautiful it is it is a flow and expression of consciousness of energy after all you know the the body what we call the body is just the other end of the spectrum of consciousness it's the narrow end of consciousness and so we're here to experience that as well. The, the problem lies in the deep fixed identification with it. When we get lost in that, yeah. you know, then there's attachment and aversion and fear and conflict and blah de blah de blah Yeah, you've got to sort of be able to stay present with it and just sort of surf through it. And yeah, I've always struggled with that. I get caught up in things. So it's, yeah, I see. So it's not like a moral or ethical position these morals and ethics are derived from the idea that we need to be able to participate in life without forming attachment do you think that people are kind of do you think that we vary you know because i get the sense that i'm someone that probably should have been put in a monastery quite young myself like stick him over there give him a job tell him to do the gardening otherwise he's going to be a pain in the ass in the village or 
I wouldn't agree with that. I reckon Let me you, loose. Oh, I reckon you've had the perfect life, you oh. know. I really do. Look, here's the thing. Those potentials, those expressions of consciousness, they're like seeds. And a seed is going to grow at some point and it wants to reach the light. It wants to take form. It wants to be lived and have its life and experience. And so the thing is if you try and thwart that or suppress it or divert it it's just going to break out in another way in another moment so you don't believe in sort of asceticism particularly and this bit of your story where you disavow uh, any particular specific theological tradition you think that's because it becomes about the sort of artifice and emblems and the pageantry and I was thinking recently that pageantry is often to mask nothingness, ceremony to connect with the vibrant, warm nothingness, the awakeness, you know. Yeah. Like I thought when I was watching the Super Bowl, pageantry. This doesn't mean anything. The royal family. That doesn't mean anything. Opening of and parliament. The flags. Yeah, what's all this madness that's trying to distract us? But ceremony is an attempt to instantiate intersect with and convene with the unknowable is mm. do you think i'm right about that yeah most definitely and and i feel it's it's about having this relationship between form and formlessness so it's not that i'm saying look all you know expressions of religious practice they're they're wrong and we we shouldn't have them all i'm saying is that there's there's a shady line that you know we can travel a little too far into the attachment of the trappings and we lose sight of the underlying essence and what that relationship is really about which transcends the construct anyway yes we can use that to some degree but ultimately it's to have a relationship that's you know something inexplicable we can't define it we can only experience it do you mind if I just quickly glance at these oh, things? Go right ahead. Isaira began to display awakened consciousness at the age of two, showed heightened psychic healing abilities, was rejected as a misfit, vowed to dedicate her life as to awaken humanity, is addicted to tequila. The Balinese <laughs> call her. Ah, just stuck one in there for a laugh. <laughs> I did it for a bit of mischief just out of nowhere. I love it. <laughs> A bit of senseless skullduggery. Well, all right then. What do you think we're going to do to awaken in overly secularised, rationalised, materialised people where sacred and spiritual experiences are more commonly expressed as addiction or mental illness, where the tools don't, at least are not presented for awakening, where our primal drives, desires and fears are continually stimulated by a matrix of systems designed to keep people trapped on lower frequencies. How do you think that we can uh, convey a message of awakening in a way that people don't think it's all new age and whack? Yeah, totally. Look, one of the things I really feel so deeply is our calling now is what's actually happening on the planet and that Everything we've been doing and practicing or experiencing is showing us it doesn't work that way. Things are collapsing. Crisis is happening. Society has its fracturing. You know, mental health issue, issues are increasing, etc. And so all of this is already showing us that 
it's unsustainable. So even, oh, yeah. even if we wanted to keep it going this way and prevent some greater awakening of, you know, addicts or people with mental health issues or whatever, we can't stop that anyway because the underlying truth is it's coming into the foreground. The reason things are collapsing is because it's not truth. It's not the way reality is. You can't prevent reality from being reality forever. And I feel that actually this is incredibly hopeful because, look, if we want to live in alignment with truth, we have to be prepared to dismantle whatever is false first. And whether we like it or not, that is going to happen. So oftentimes addiction is part of that process. A person is actually collapsing and dismantling this construct that they can't fit into. They don't work with the way society is. And so it's, it's an unconscious process of undergoing that collapse, ultimately to hit the point where there's nowhere else to go but here to really be finally present with oneself and all the ugliness of it, the harshness, the the destruction of it and the possibility of rebirth within it. You know, it's it's here in this mess mm-hmm. and um, that's what's happening in the world. So I feel it's an incredibly powerful time, a hopeful time because we've got this, this synergy, this kind of, bubbling energy of crisis, collapse, conflict and uprising of awakening that's saying, hey, things are not working. And in the midst of that, Mother Earth is saying to us, you know, this this is unsustainable. What's that telling us? That actually one of the strongest things we need to do is reconnect to nature, to earth, restore that relationship. And as we restore that relationship, we plug back into an immense field of intelligence and love. Do you know one of the main reasons people are walking around in so much grief and and an aching empty hole inside is because they're actually not plugged into the universe. They're not plugged into the love of life. And you wonder why, you know, you go and you try and get it from one person or from objects. You wonder why you feel so unfulfilled and empty. What have we got to do to get it? Reconnect. How? It's all about us restoring our relationship with our true nature, with nature, with ourself, with each other, with our soul, with the universe. I call this um, the four pillars of law. If we look into our human history, universal to all Indigenous people are these four underpinning laws. And there's one central tenet, and that is everything is interconnected and interdependent. Everything. And how that is manifested or experienced is through one, nature, country, earth, place. Two, relationship, kinship, our family and every living creature that we're in kinship with life and we're interdependent on each other. Three is actually the infinite source beyond just this time and place. It is the forever, the continuum. And four being the cosmos, so the the macrocosmic patterns and laws of creation. And Indigenous people know that if you 
break one of those threads, the tapestry becomes destabilized. You break two, it starts to fall apart. You break three, it begins to unravel. You break four and it's collapse. What's happening now, Russell? I don't know. I'm trying to track which one of the threads we're on, but I don't think we're in a... It's not a good bit. I'd say we're around the three or four area. We're, we're, we're around three and four. Most people are experiencing a fracturing and a disconnection from all of those. And so really this is a time, you know, all this uprising like the, the you know, Greta Thunbergs of the world and, and you and me and, you know, that the mother who's worried about what her child is learning in school, the scientists, etc. We're all together part of this time, this generation, where we are trying to reawaken, remember, restore those underlying values, reconnect to those principles that do unify us. And we lived with that. You know, for example, my ancestors, 60,000 years lived sustainably with those threads intact, that whole connective relationship with life. And now is our time to draw upon the wisdom of our Indigenous elders and our roots of knowledge. It's time to revision our education, reimagine our systems, rebuild our structures based on deeper, sustainable principles. So we are all part of this, the regeneration. Mm, that was nice. We're in it. It's happening right now. Yeah, this is it. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Stripping Look, it's from happening. the ceiling. <laughs> it's all over the shop. <laughs> oh, you're so lovely. Thank you for doing that. Um, it's lovely to talk to you, Isaira. I have to um, do this show now, but I, I feel um, it was really wonderful to sit and look at you and listen to you and be with you to have you explain these things. A very clear, simple, warm amusing strange ways i'm also glad you didn't wear them little toe shoes that that you bought and seemed like you were even considering changing into at one point oh they're just so comfy you've got to try them sometime russell i don't like the idea of putting each toe in quarantine you don't it's oh. only, it's only each little toes in its oh. own little each little piggy in its own little sty you know what that's really interesting you think of it as being confined and and quarantined i think of it as being expanded and stretched and opened oh hello <laughs> i'm gonna have to start looking at some different perspectives around these little tootsie boots <laughs> thank you so much thank for coming you around russell you're awesome. You're lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to me, Russell Brand, on Under the Skin with Isaira. Uh, let me know what you thought on my various social media platforms. If you don't know the address by now, I'm not going to embarrass myself by telling you. I'm in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. There's a couple of tickets available on the second shows that we've released. You get them on russellbrand.com. Do it now, why don't you? Sign up for the mailing list. You'll love that. I could do little special videos. In the meantime, why don't you go back and listen to some previous episodes like the wonderful Wendy Mandy, that glorious shaman teacher, healer. And keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new, new videos and new data. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.